0: can turn back to the passage we read, First Timothy, and we can read again verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. several uh, statements in Paul's letters uh, described as faithful sayings or a saying that is trustworthy and um, some people wonder if these trustworthy saints were kind of memory statement that um, early Christians had to remember crucial doctrines. Because after all, they didn't have a Bible the way we do. And they needed to have some method of recalling important matters. So it's reasonable to assume that they had a way of identifying such saints, and the way of identifying them is to call them trustworthy. And if you do want me to go home, I think there are six of them, and they're all found, as far as I remember, in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And just even if we remember them, we'll have six memory statements in our minds. What's quite intriguing about this memory statement is that Paul wanted everyone to remember what happened to him. He says that, doesn't he? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And of course if it had stopped there it would still have been true. But it doesn't stop there. Paul adds or continues, Paul continues, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul wanted people to remember what had happened to him. As most of us know, we're Last few Sunday mornings, we've been thinking of one line descriptions that people make of individuals. And we've thought of Abraham, the friend of God. And we thought of Moses, who is said to have been the meekest man in all the earth. And we thought of David, who is described as the sweet psalmist of Israel. But these three descriptions are given by other people. They're not given by the individuals themselves. Abram, there's not a version in the Bible which has Abram saying, I am God's friend. I mean, no doubt he may have said it, but it's not recorded in the Bible. Nor is there a version in the Bible where Moses says, I am the meekest man in the world. Somebody else writes it, and the same is true for David as a sweet psalmist of Israel. That description is given by somebody else. But here, there's another self, another one-line description, this time by Paul about himself, where he says, "I am the foremost," or "I am." the chief. The word is just, I am the first. And it's almost as if he's imagining a big queue. And in that queue is every person of the human race. And they're going to be lined up with the worst sinner at the front. And Paul says that he should be at the front He's the worst. Now it's an interesting question to ask if this is just kind of what somebody feels subjectively. And this is what Paul felt about himself. Or is it something objective? That he actually was the worst sinner ever. I can't answer that one, but the options are there, and it is interesting, at least I think it's interesting, that he wanted people to remember he was the worst. Paul of course is um, still very well known. all over the world today there's people who either love him or hate him and that's true in society and sadly that division is also found in the church because some people regard him as outdated a man confined to the ideas of his time where others as others think of him as a man who could almost grasp the whole significance of time. What's it all about? Well, who explains it like Paul? And he does it so easily. He does it while he's dictating a letter. I don't know if Paul ever wrote an essay probably did, but in the Bible he writes letters, and in these letters he says the most profound things, and sometimes he inserts them into a topic that we might think is quite mundane, like things like church collections, and in the middle of his Reminder to the church in Corinth to take a collection, he says, that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And that's an exceptionally profound statement. He just uses it as a motive for Christian giving. Who's our model for Christian giving? But we might think of another person that we know, who may have given a lot. Paul says, think of Jesus. He does that all the time, and he's talking about humility, and he's reminding the church in Philippi about how they should interact with each other. He, does, he doesn't only point to um, people like uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus who had, in some small measure, expressed their willingness to, to serve. But he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But although he was God, he made himself Nothing. and so on. So, Paul is certainly a, a man whose words get a hearing. Most of us say things and we're, we're never too sure if anybody's listening to us. I'm not talking about in here. I'm just talking about life in general. We're never too sure if somebody is listening to us. I don't think Paul ever had that experience. Doesn't matter where he was. People listened to him. Whether they were kings, or where they were Roman centurions, or where they were Jewish opponents, or whether it was just ordinary people that he met, they were all kind of spellbound by what he had to say. So he's a, a man who's left his mark. How many writings from the first century are read every day throughout the world? Well, apart from the Bible, none. None. A few scholars here and there pick up an ancient manuscript or what's left of it. But Paul's writings, well, they're everywhere. And today, millions of people have picked them up and read them and have had their faith strengthened and their hope enlarged and helped in making sense of life. I mean, if you're looking out on the horizon and you're seeing all these things coming, negative, negative things, well, what's Paul got to say about that? Well, he doesn't say if you pray, it won't come. He never says that. But he does say that God can work all things for our good. Everything. And that helps us to understand the past and the present and the future. All things. God's working them for good. It's only a short sentence but what truth it contains. And Paul had that facility with words. He was able to do that. He could do that before he was converted because he found it no problem to go to the Jewish leaders and give him authority to go up to Damascus uh, to crush the Christians because that's what he wanted to do he just went and asked and he got it he just had power his presence almost meant power And no doubt he was aware of it, because sometimes it's very difficult for people not to be aware of who they are. And that's why sometimes the biggest struggle people have is with themselves. So Paul knew very well what kind of man he was. And he had his own ambitions in life. And then one day he met Jesus. Or perhaps we should say one day Jesus stopped him in his tracks on the Damascus Road. And one sight of Jesus changed Paul's direction. He wasn't the same man again. He had a new opinion of himself and he had a new opinion of Jesus. The new opinion he had of himself He's the chief of sinners. And the new opinion he had of Jesus is that he's no longer the imposter but rather he's the saviour. So I just want us to think briefly about this title. Of course it's not confined to Paul. One of the best selling Christian books <clears throat> you may not have read it but it's One of the best-selling Christian books of all time is *Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners*, John Bunyan's autobiography. He takes his title from these verses, because Paul talks there about how God's grace was shown abundantly towards them. Says there in verse 14. The ESV is the word overflowed, but it's, it's the word "abundant." And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And maybe Banyan wanted to compete with Paul about who should be the chief of sinners. But anyway, he borrowed the title from him, Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. I want us to just basically think of three things and then some conclusions. The three things are, first, why did Paul think this about himself? Why did he think he was the chief of sinners? And then to ask, when did he say this? Because the context is always important. And then thirdly, how did he say it? Because it's very important to know how a person says something. And then after that, some lessons. Why did Paul say this? Well, I think there's at least four reasons. And I'll just mention them first one is that Paul discovered that the law is more than external. Law of God. He's writing about the law of God in chapter 1 as we read and he's writing about how some people could abuse it. And Paul knew all about abusing the law of God because he did it himself. He actually did it for every day he was living prior to knowing Jesus. And the way he abused the law of God was by imagining that all that mattered was external. And he reminds the Philippians in chapter 3 that, with regard to his external um, um, conformity to God's requirements, he was blameless. What an extraordinary statement. I don't think any of us can say that. But Paul could say it about his external uh, conformity to God's requirements, he was blameless. You know, that means he never lost his temper. Isn't that extraordinary? A man as fiery as Paul. No one could say to him, Oh, on such such a day, you lost your temper. And of course, all that means, of course, is that he had a good measure of self control. He was always in charge of himself, of what he did. It is a striking comment that he was blameless. And he could actually say it, because he says it in that letter to the Philippians. And if he, if it wasn't true, then there would be a whole lot of people starting up saying, wait a minute, remember what you said or did? But he says he was blameless. What an extraordinary statement to make. But he discovered and actually, uh, obedience comes out from out, outside from the inn, not the other way round. Obedience flows from the heart. It's not something you put on. It's not as so you get up in the morning and say, "Well, what am I going to wear today?" and so that other people will see it. I think I'll put on the Ten Commandments today. Paul discovered that wasn't the way to live. What he needed was obedience that came from the inside, from the inside out. Because he actually realized that that up until now, the day came when he met Jesus, he actually realized that his successful way of living was actually a failure. So it was just something he had done himself. All of it was his own self-choice, all to maintain his position in society. Because he was a leader amongst the Pharisees. And if he had failed to conform to that requirements, they would have soon pointed it out to him. Anyway, that's one reason why he now thinks he's a chief of sinners. Because he had discovered that the law was more than external. It was in the heart. And of course we have to ask ourselves have we found that? A second lesson or a second reason sorry for why Paul thinks this is that he discovered the power of one's sin. And he tells us that in Romans chapter 7. People tend to quote one verse but I'm not really refer to the rest of the chapter. And the one verse they quote is, O wretched man that I am. But why did he think he was wretched? And he tells us in the chapter why he thought he was wretched. And he just says that God's law showed him that he was guilty of one sin. Or one type of sin. Now one sin con- controlled him. I mean, that's what he's saying. And the sin that controlled him is number ten of the Ten Commandments: the sin of coveting. Paul, as he searched himself, discovered that there was this power within him, and this power was to have what others had. And he wanted to have whatever these things were to make himself better, to make himself more important, to make himself more powerful. He used other people as his level of success. And if he saw them having anything that he didn't have, he coveted it and said, I've either got to get it or I've got to get somehow be more important than others. And this cavitine just dominated him. I mean, cavitine for Paul wasn't just getting a new piece of furniture or something. It was something that dominated his whole life. Every day he was marked by cavity. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. Whatever it was. And, of course, he realized that, as he says elsewhere, that coveting is idolatry. It means he was living for it. Whatever he desired, it controlled him. And whatever controls us is our God. That's what Paul discovered. That's just the power of one sin. It's almost if he runs down the whole list and the Ten Commandments, and ticks them all off. Yeah, I've never taken God's name in vain. I've never... I've kept the Sabbath. I've done all this. I've honored my parents. He ticks them all off, and he gets down to number ten, and he says when he read that, he died. And in one moment... God has showed him the kind of person he was. He was a covetous man, which of course means he wasn't a satisfied man. He wasn't content. It's quite extraordinary to compare that statement with what he says about himself later on, right into the Philippines, he says, I have learned, wherever I am, to be content. He certainly didn't have that before he met Jesus. But when he met Jesus, he discovered he had this inner compulsion. And this inner compulsion was part of him being the chief of sinners. The third reason for why he thought this about himself was he had committed certain sins against Jesus. I mean, the other sins obviously were against God and against people, but there were certain sins he had committed against Jesus, and he mentions them in verse 13. And he actually mentions three of them. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. I mean, Paul, as far as he was aware Knew that he had never taken God's name in vain. So, how is he a blasphemer? Well, he's a blasphemer because of who he thought Jesus was. He didn't regard Jesus as the Son of God. He thought Jesus was an imposter, a fake, a false prophet. He thought Jesus deserved to die, but not to die as a sacrifice. believed that Jesus deserved to die because because Jesus was a blasphemer. That's what Paul thought. And of course when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road that's the first thing he realized isn't it? Because what does he say? What is Paul's first response on the Damascus Road? Who are you Lord? In a second, he realized who was speaking to him. This bright light, brighter than the noonday sun. The voice that came from within that light. He realized that here was somebody very different. And the last thing he expected the voice to say to him was, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he discovered there... Two of the things that he's mentioned in this trilogy, he was a blasphemer. Every time he had insulted the name of Jesus, he had committed blasphemy. And going by his behavior prior to his conversion, he'd have done that numerous times a day. But anyway, he remembers it. And it makes me the chief of sinners, he says. And he was a persecutor. And as Jesus said, You're persecuting me. And Paul didn't say, Well, I've never touched you. He never said that, did he? He got the point right away. And he was, as he puts to himself, he was arresting men and women and dragging them to prison. What a a picture. That's Saul's memory. I was dragging them to prison. Persecuting from city to city all his energy. Now he thinks it just proved he was a chief of sinners. And then he's insolent. All that means, of course, is that he never spoke nicely to a Christian. Insolent. It means violent. But not just violent with his actions, but violent with his words. Verbal assaults were his method. An insolent man And we can imagine him doing it as he hauls in these Christians to try and get them to renounce their Savior. As he looks back on all that activity, all he says about himself is chief of sinners. And the fourth reason is he understood the mercy of God. I mean, Paul would have chanted the Jewish creeds and the Psalms and other passages that mention the mercy of God and every single time he had done so he had never understood once what the word mercy meant. One day he met Jesus and that's when he understood mercy and as as he thinks of God's mercy and he mentions it here there's the cost of his mercy As far as God was concerned, it wasn't just three words, I forgive you. In order for God to be able to say that, Jesus had to come and die. He had to give his life. He didn't merely have to die either. But on the cross, he had to endure the wrath of God. What a price he paid, he gave himself. He gave himself to what? He gave himself to the wrath of God. It was a very distressing period. But you know, he never cried to God to stop it. Because if he had stopped it, no mercy. So the cost was the cost was more than can be calculated. But of course it's also undeserved. I mean, Saul, Saul imagined before his conversion they had all the qualifications that was needed to get to heaven. But he discovered he didn't have any. And he had discovered that even after he became a Christian, he didn't have any. No qualifications at all for getting to heaven. Mercy is always undeserved. A person who's been a Christian for decades can't go into God's presence and demand mercy. He can plead for mercy, certainly, but mercy is never our Right. It's always a divine expression of grace. So that since that's the case, Paul knew that this mercy which transformed him, because we're told it transformed him and made him marked by faith and love, totally different kind of person, this grace, this mercy had changed him. And as he looked at the great change in his life, he didn't say to himself, I am no longer the chief of sinners." Because he realized that if this mercy stopped functioning, he would cease to be the changed man that he is. He needed mercy all the way. That's four reasons why he thought he was the chief of sinners. He discovered the law is more than external. He discovered the power of one sin in his life. He remembered the sins he had done against Jesus. And he remembered the greatness of God's mercy. And they're the same reasons why we should think that we are the chief of sinners. We can't compete with Paul for being first in gifts. But maybe we can compete about being the first of sinners. When did Paul say this? Well, there's three reasons without this. There's probably more, but three. When did he say this? Well, he's now been a Christian for about three decades. So this is the words of a mature believer. This is not the self-description of somebody who's just been converted. This is someone who's been on the road for decades. This is someone who has seen God use him in a dramatic way. There's countless churches around the Mediterranean who are in existence now because of this man. He's had profound experiences. He's even been up to the third heaven. And yet he describes himself not I was the chief of sinners, but I am the chief of sinners. That's one reason. Second reason, he actually makes it when he's writing a book of the Bible. There's one thing quite extraordinary about every book in the Bible, and that is that every one of them was written by a sinner. But as this man writes this book, he's aware that he's a sinner. As he writes all these words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's thinking about the fact that he's a sinner. And he's thinking about Timothy and what Timothy's got to do there in Ephesus with all the issues that are facing him. And how best could I describe myself, says Paul? What way can I encourage Timothy? I'll tell him I'm a sinner same kind of person as the ones whose Timothy's got to deal with. But anyway, there he is writing the New Testament and he's conscious that he's a chief of sinners. His realization didn't make him do nothing, did it? The fact that he was a saved sinner made him do what God required of him. A person who realizes a great sinner will not do nothing. A person who realizes he's a great sinner or she's a great sinner, they'll do something. They'll do what God wants them to do. And so he does it when he's writing the Bible. He also mentions it when he's dealing with church problems. Because if you read 1 Timothy, we can see all kinds of problems that were in the church in Ephesus. And he could have said to them, and he would have said it to them, of course, he could have said to all these people, You're a disgrace he didn't. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. It's almost as if he takes himself down to their level. I'm a sinner too. That's when he said it. And probably he is thinking to himself, well, well, they might say to themselves, if God changed that man, then he'll forgive us as well. He fought against the church. These people in Ephesus were in danger of doing the same. And Paul tells them he's the chief of sinners. How did he say it? Well, three suggestions regarding that. He said it because he was honest. He's not hiding anything. He's honest. That's who I am. He said it because he's humble. I mean, what did Saul of Tarsus deserve? He deserved to go to hell, didn't he? But he's not going there. And therefore he's humble. If Jesus made himself nothing for Saul of Tarsus, then Saul of Tarsus made himself nothing for Jesus. Thinking about the cross never increases a person's pride. So he was honest, and he was humble, and of course he's hopeful. Because who is it that Jesus helps? Sinners. Chief of sinners. And these three features should mark every Christian. Honesty, humility, and hopefulness. What are some lessons we can take from this? Clock stopped, by the way. But um, what are some lessons we can take from this? How did Paul see himself? An interesting one. Is this the only time he's got this low view? Or how about when he says he's the least of the apostles? All these others are better than me. Or how about when he says that he's the least of all the saints? because he does say that. He's the least of all the saints. Why did he think that? Because he knew he was the chief of sinners. This kind of response is not unique to Paul. Think of Peter, when Jesus gave him a miraculous catch of fish. Peter just falls at the feet of Jesus and says to him, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. (laughs) The proof That we've met Jesus is that we see our sin and confess it. If I can remain silent about my sin in the presence of Jesus, I'm not in the presence of Jesus. A third lesson that comes from this description of Paul here is that he highlights what Jesus did. And in this brief set of verses, he looks back to what Jesus did in the past for him on the cross. Forgave him. He looks at what Jesus did after that. Showed him love and faith and abundance overflowing down onto him. But he also points out what Jesus did before he met Paul. And he says it there in verse 16 that Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. There's Paul calling believer, number one, to prison. Jesus is patient. Number two, Jesus is patient. Number 1,000, Jesus is patient. Who knows how many Paul persecuted? But through it all, He says that Jesus showed perfect patience to me. And we can relate to that surely. If you're a Christian, what was Jesus showing towards you before you became a Christian? Patience. The last thing is... Who gets the credit? Well, Paul tells us there in verse 17, as he thinks about what's happened to him, he just says, to the king of the ages, the mortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God alone gets the credit. And Paul takes the time not just to say thanks be to God but he does take the time to think about who his God is and just mentions it because when we praise God we're meant to say why we praise him we praise him for who he is and for what he has done And we join Paul, don't we, and say that he deserves honor and glory forever and ever. Shall we pray?